All right, we're going to take a little different uh, trip this time. It was a new adventure for me. I talked to Andrew Badnock on this episode, and this cat's up to some wildness. And you're going to want to you're going to want to check this out. It may be inspirational. Uh, Andrew Badnock of Evolvify.com is going on an adventure, um, fat bike rafting, the Arctic. It's a seven thousand mile, seven river, zero fuel adventure solo. Um, and we talk about it in this episode. Um, he has a Kickstarter fundraising project. I think there's only about two more days left. I think it goes through February 16th, 2012. So hit the link for his Kickstarter page and chip in a few bucks um, to help him um, get his uh, some additional needs, a sat phone and some other some other niceties for him. You know, um, it's not contributing to uh, global hunger. Um, (laughs) So, you know, but maybe it is contributing to the needy. Maybe the people that are in need of wildness or the spirit of adventure, you know, maybe funding his trip will inspire wildness in you and in others. So check it out and... I'll have all kinds of links in the show notes. Uh, so he's at Evolvify.com and 770.org. Uh, I'm going to start recording now and we'll just get into a conversation about Whatever the hell we were talking about on before, <laughs> this will be fun. So, um, okay, here we go. Welcome to another edition of Doc Fermento discovers the world, and today we're going to discover the world of Andrew Badnock. Um, he of Evolvify dot com and the seven seven zero global fuel ex global zero fuel expeditions. Hey, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Great, man. Uh, thanks for uh, hanging in there while I had some glitches. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. The internet <laughs> uh, is a fun thing, right? Yeah, evolution, the evolution of technology <laughs> has <laughs> failed me tonight. Insert back to the Stone Age joke. Yeah, right. Um, so what is, what is all this? What is all this evolution business in our modern <laughs> lives? What, what nonsense is this? I don't know. Um, where I'm approaching is kind of just uh, the the applied approach. I think that so many great thinkers across history that we still have you know, good records of, uh, we're missing that component in bringing it around and, and kind of adding some nuance to things that that people thought and said uh, through the the lens of Darwinian uh, evolution has a lot of potential for a lot of different things. Basically, everything that that's related to human life and the rest of it. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about evolution since I don't know seventh grade or something. Right. You know, until discovering the paleo diet and. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my reintroduction, and sure. I'm not even sure, you know, how much of what I do has anything to do with the evolutionary 
you know, things. It just, it fits for me and it works. So, um, I don't really want to run down the rat hole of evolutionary diet. Let's cover all the rest. What, what can, how can evolution even fit in an everyday life? What purpose, you know, what, how, how does that incorporate into life? Well, I think the the start of it from the from the other perspective, well, of course, the diet stuff is kind of just looking at the at the biology. It's more of an evolutionary biology thing. Uh, in the recent past, there's been a movement to uh, kind of approach how our brains evolved and how that affects the rest of our our psychology, the way that we think about things, the the per, perhaps weird ways that we approach things that aren't necessarily logical. Um, and yeah, just, just analyzing everything through the, the mental lens as well, going from the assumption that our, our brains evolved. So that's been ignored quite a bit since, since Darwin is just picking up in the last basically two decades. Yeah. So you're talking about evolutionary psychology. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, in the animal world, uh, they, talk somewhat about behavioral ecology and so it's really a lot of different terms for it evolutionary psychology is is kind of the the big one right now uh but yeah it's referred to by many different things depending on who you're talking to okay yeah you know i follow a ton of paleo people on blogs and their podcasts and twitter and everyone has their unique angle whether it's from the diet psychology so I just find mm-hmm. it fascinating, and I had, like I said, you know, I'd never thought about that pertaining to everyday life. So it's very curious to me. Well, let's move on to your your massive mission that you're about to undertake. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Fat bike rafting the Arctic. Tell us about this. Um, basically, I'm going to be uh, grabbing a bike and a pack raft and heading to the Arctic Ocean. And not taking an exactly direct route. It's big, a big loop starting in Washington State uh, and going up through B.C., Yukon, Northwest Territories until I hit the ocean, uh, and then crossing back over to Alaska and looping back down. That's We're a talking big to, picture. I was reading here on, your, on the site, 7,000 miles, seven rivers, zero fuel. Yeah, give or take. The, the mileage estimate could vary quite a bit bit that's the target but because of very various ice conditions weather conditions i I have a bunch of contingency routes that Mm -hmm. that may change so but yeah seven thousand roughly is the target i think it's like 7200 the the big route if i remember correctly okay and is this is this the the perfect appropriate time of year is that why you're doing this right now for weather basically it's the only it's the only type of year. It's bracketed on both ends by nasty weather, and and actually, it's it's questionable as to whether or not I'm going to be able to fit it in there in time, uh, depending on how many detours I have to make and and how much I'm held up. Basically, fitting it between the end of March and before you know, kind of October, November, is is the weather window, and that you know, if next year if the cold sets in early or if things uh drag on this year it, it kind of throws a wrench in things so yeah it's a, it's a really tight um, it's, it's kind of too many too many miles to be a hundred percent but we give it a go wow how did you come up with the even the the idea of of such a feat i've been 
I've been experimenting with pack rafting for a while and just the, the potentials that it opens up, you know, being able to throw the bike on or throw the, the raft on, uh, on the bike, strap it to the handlebar, strap it to the backpack and go and then reverse the, the process when you get to the river or whatever, you know, strap the bike hmm. to the front of the raft and, and get back down. So it's basically just an extension of the, the, possibilities of that i just looked at a map and kind of said okay what where do these rivers go in which direction and how would you go about piecing them together based on the flow the the way that the continental divide works you know the rocky mountains kind of go north and south in the continental u.s but it starts to curve around to the west through alaska as you head north so it turns out that the rivers kind of angle across as well so it's kind of a fan as far as the direction of the rivers so if you connect them you can actually kind of go downhill so to speak mm-hmm. all, all the way around and there's, and there's a lot wow. of land in between to connect together but basically it, it just came from looking at the map and and having that realization was you know if, if i can get between the rivers you can do a lot down going with the current yeah, that's super cool. I, I was looking at those pack rafts. I mean, that's that's really cool. Back when I used to actually get off my ass and do stuff, um, one <laughs> adventure we had done was some canoeing in upstate New York. And, um, you know, we just threw our mountain bikes right on an old rental aluminum canoe. And the guy looked at us sure. like we were nuts with all our gear. Yeah. But um, that was one of the finest times ever it was just totally rustic. You just go find a spot out in a national forest or whatever and... um you know, canoe your way around and then bike when you're on the ground, but nothing like what you're up to. No, it's, it's still the same concept. It's just the, the pack raft allows you to take the portaging element out of it, which was, and in the shuttling of vehicles, you know, when when you're trying to get somewhere, you have to work around everybody's work schedules and, you know, try to hit it on a weekend. So it all works out with this way. You can go solo or you know obviously a, a few people and not have to deal with that shuttling component so it just it opens up a huge amount of potential adventure wise and logistically so you don't have any support it's other than technology and other things it's just it's just you right i mean i'm going to have to hit resupply points along the way basically in in the villages that are spread out and some of them are relatively reasonably uh, close and some of some of them are more of a challenge wow so yeah i that's that's pretty amazing i know there's some of these uh adventure shows on tv where you know it's one man against the elements and i've never been you know so sure about exactly how uh isolated that person was but you're really going to get into it yeah, it's kind of there there's a couple section that's just logistically there's nothing between for hundreds of miles, so there's no no wow. options. So what type of uh, technological support do you have? Communications um well there's a lot of things we'll cover, but Yeah, for right now I've, I've just got a it's basically a satellite uplink so the android i have an android phone that's waterproof you know kind of not not quite the mil spec official stuff but relatively waterproof and the satellite uplink allows to send text messages uh, through satellite so pole to pole 
whole way anywhere on Earth as long as you have basically line of sight to the sky. I can feed up text messages, and it automatically tags it with the location, too. The uh, satellite device has GPS built into it, and I can set it up to just just communicate position back and forth as well if I if I chose to do that. So that's what I'm definitely going with, and I'm experimenting with that right now. I'm also uh, trying to get a little bit of redundancy to be prudent and hook up with a, a satellite phone as well. That basically, if that one device goes out. Even if I'm fine, alarm bells are going to start going off with people when there's no if there's no, no communication commu- yeah, there's coming nothing. in. Right, right. So what I'm I'm kind of most worried about is being fine and still and everyone worrying that exactly, exactly. So I'm, I'm going to try to get a little redundancy through a sat phone, and it's really cool. Twitter just announced a partnership with Iridium and another company, but Iridium is is basically the main satellite company. So they you can actually do like standard Twitter SMS via the satellite phone. So that is is oh, that's huge cool. so as you don't far need as a, communication. You won't need a client or anything. It'll just go exactly. directly, yeah, exactly. sync together. It yes, saves you like, on batteries, saves on everything. Also also, the incoming text messages for the satellite are free, so it it adds huge two-way communication potentials. The the other satellite device that I have, the just the satellite text uplink, mm-hmm. I have to pay both directions for every text, so it, it severely limits it cost-wise. Mm, cost, yeah. So that's why I added so the Kickstarter project. I increased the kind of soft goal a little bit to enable the, the satellite phone to get added into it. I, I just think it's it's a good idea. Yeah, let's um real quick just give an audio link to the um to the Kickstarter project. A lot of people, you know, you say, I'll put it in the show notes. No one goes and reads show notes. <laughs> so yeah. you have a Kickstarter project. Where can mm-hmm. um and for people that don't know, this is a fundraiser uh, fundraiser site. You're on there for your um your adventure in the Arctic, what's the address? It's a really long one, but I, right. I have a, a kind of a, a short solution. Okay. If you go to, I have a link that sets up to forward it. It's 770, so the number seven, the number seven, Z E R O dot org okay. forward slash F B R T A, short for the initials for Fat Bike Rafting the Arctic. F-B-R-T-A. So that will. If, you got it. So if you go to, if you just type that in, it automatically forwards you to the super long Kickstarter link. Okay, cool, good. Glad we got that out of the way. So, um, you're documenting this trip um, with video cams and and such. Yes, that's kind of the the point of the the Kickstarter thing. I, I could do it just solo approach and go man in the wild style and go feral mm-hmm. <laughs> and have no no contact and and that that is kind of appealing to me actually but <laughs> i i like I, I think that everybody should have more exposure to nature there's new research that's come out in the last year or so that shows and and this ties back into the evolutionary stuff the way that humans think about things um people almost 
across the board underestimate how much psychological, emotional benefits we get from being in nature. Um, there's a, a researcher who's come up with kind of the, the technical phrase, nature-relatedness. So we, if we're asked to predict how much benefit we would get spending X amount of time in nature, we almost always underestimate it compared to the reality. So if you ask people what, how it's going to benefit them, and then you actually put them in that position, you find out that it benefits them way more than they predicted. Hmm. So we have kind of a, a bias to discount that value. So I'm just whatever I can I can do to make it more approachable for people to get out and and kind of reconnect mm -hmm. with wildness in a way. I I think there's value in that. So that's kind of what the documentation is about. It, it's kind of the how-to stuff and I don't know how inspirational it's going to be, but that kind of the, the nuts and bolts is important, I think, for a lot of people. It's just a limiting factor. So all the Kickstarter rewards, you know, it's it's not just a straight donation thing. It's mm -hmm. kind of an exchange. So all of those rewards are geared toward basically how to do this stuff. Right. So at certain um, um, donation levels, you get different rewards, say uh, a copy of the DVD or, you know, and on and on. Right, right. So some of them are... are basically websites that I'm putting together that is just a compendium of all of this stuff that I'm going through uh, and to, to push it back out to people. So they have a resource as well. So that's what some of those other thing, things are. So yeah, it's tying it together and make, making it approachable and giving people the tools to do whatever they can come up with. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't doesn't have to be this extreme and this it scales that's the cool part with the pack rafting stuff i'm trying to show you know i, I started off doing pack rafting just a day at a time and it scales way up and mm -hmm. you know kind of same thing with with cycling you know you can you could ride to the grocery store or you can bike across the country or mm -hmm. across the planet so th just that that scaling thing is is an important component i think absolutely so staying on that back to the technology um, angle. Mm -hmm. What about, um, are you doing anything with, um, like for note taking or, um, tracking like mapping, uh, or what about like in your evenings, you know, what are, what are you going to be doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, basically one of my, my main other electronic nerd devices is I'm taking a, at this point, a Barnes and Noble Nook, mm -hmm. uh, the touch version. So it's the black and white e-ink screen couple reasons for that one the battery life out of the box is two months you know depending on usage so mm -hmm. that's huge because of that screen technology they're hugely efficient you know if you switch to the color screen you drop from two months to uh, a week or something mm -hmm. like that maybe less so i'm using that to carry backups of maps so i'll have hard copies of stuff but there's no way i can store all the details uh, and the diff the different levels of map, you know, if you're on Google Maps and zooming in and out, you gonna know how how much it has to reload everything every time you change stuff. So I I can't carry maps for this, you know, that detail for the entire thing. So I'm gonna have the maps backed up on the Nook, I'll have the maps backed up on the Android phone, and also both of those link into all of my book accounts with you know, Amazon and uh, Google Books, so I'll have the 
e-versions of books that I need to, to keep up on and the phone if, if I get super extra time or get hold up for weather somewhere I, I'll have some maybe videos on there and hmm. some lightweight games and that mm-hmm. sort of thing but yeah. mostly mostly the the books and the the mapping stuff is where that's coming in and I think that's going to be hugely helpful and and not having to carry well as backups for more detailed maps that I'm not going to be able to carry yeah and a giant leather bound note taking nope. <laughs> you know, yeah, diary and with a cool pen that, so, and <laughs> right, right. So yeah, the Nook is probably going to be what I use for taking notes as well. I, this since the screen is a little bigger than the phone, I can type reasonably well on it. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So I imagine you're going to be a power generation station out there. How, how are you yeah. going to accomplish that? Yeah, so that's a. And tie, kind of tying back into the 770 component um, with the, mm-hmm. the zero fuel stuff. Uh, the bike is, I'm building a, it's called a dyno hub, but basically it's a generator in the front wheel. So whenever the wheel's spinning, it's cranking out electricity. And I will be charging everything in rotation with that in combination with a, a solar panel that I'll have depending on where I am, strapped to whatever while I'm moving and sitting up props optimally, hopefully, when I'm not moving. Part of this, you know, summertime, not far north, it's light 24-7. That's cool for solar charging because I can have it going while I'm sleeping and resting and whatever. Interesting, yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah, it, it's it's not as necessarily as cool as it might sound because the angle of the sun is so much so early intensity yeah. because yeah. Of the angle uh, it's not going to be super intense, but that's that's going to be an experiment for sure. Still enough to be enough light to be detrimental to sleep though. <laughs> if you, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. To put a hood over your head to get some rest. Yeah. So. Man, there's the logistically this is insane. How long have you been even planning this? Um probably like specifically I started thinking about it about 6 months ago. Mm-hmm. On a smaller scale, I had planned a similar thing last year and then I ended up breaking my collarbone training, so I had to scrap it. So I kind of had the basics planned, but it was much smaller. So I just expanded it and added some added some components in it to to get the route to yeah. what it is. Okay, so I see how you're fueling your devices. How are you going to fuel yourself for <laughs> this? Yeah, energy density is a huge thing. I'm basically trying to crank up the the caloric density and everything. My main strategy is pemmican, which is an old i think it's indian i've heard it talked about Cree. i'm not sure exactly who is responsible mm-hmm. although i'm sure it's fairly widespread but basically in the simplest terms the traditional recipe is about 50 percent dried protein so basically jerky which can come from a lot of you can make it from whatever right uh, salmon to bison mm-hmm. and then 50 percent rendered fat so tallow basically uh for now it's it's easiest to get uh, 
cow, basically. So beef fat rendered. Say, down. Yeah, beef uh, rendered beef, and I'm I'm sure you're um, focusing on grass fed. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> definitely grass fed is as much as possible for both the kind of the, the sustainability impacts of the, the farming methods mm-hmm. and the nutritional benefits as well. I think both right, of those are right. important. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it's one of the th- essential things you need is water, and yet it's the thing you can't pack even in oh, produce yeah. because of the the water weight. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you Having filter? You got to filter water on the run? Is that how you have Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's another kind of uh, techno gadgety thing. The water purifier I'm taking is a UV water filter or water purifier. So it takes, uh, I think, 90 seconds to purify one liter. And that's that's a battery thing, too. So that'll be it lasts quite a while. Does it battery. have a physical media as well component like, a you know, a activated charcoal or carbon block or anything? No. It's straight UV. So straight UV, wow. Hmm. The requirement is that it has to be relatively clear water. So, um, most oh, of the... yeah, yeah. Because you'll you're going to be drinking any dirt that's in there, but it may be dead. <laughs> no bug, you know, microscopic bug free. But as dirty as it is, it's going to be. Well, if it's dirty, if it's cloudy, it prevents the uv light from penetrating ah, from, oh, to yeah. kill everything so you have to get relatively clean water to, mm-hmm. to start with clear water to start with and you you could pre-water pre-filter it through clothing or or whatever sure, if you have okay. um stuff but in in this area for the most part water is not going to be in short supply mm-hmm. um that that will certain spots more are more of a concern than other but if you look at the satellite images, a lot of these places are marshy, like ponds. <laughs> There's going to be way more water than I want for yeah. for most of it. So, is some of that is the is the water then in those marshes in those lands? Is that going to be like a a brackish water, or is that all fresh, or how's that work? Oh, of course, it's going to depend on location. Most of it yeah. is, is pretty clean, though. Okay. And some of it, even to the extent the the Mackenzie River, one of the rivers I'll be traveling on is, in U.S. terms, think of the Mississippi, but it flows north to the Arctic Ocean. The If you look read the old explorers' accounts of that, they could drink the water, the seawater even, at outside the delta because the, there's such a huge flow of a huge volume of fresh water coming out there that it actually overpowers the salinity of the ocean itself wow. to an extent so yeah, that's just one example and it's it varies everywhere but a lot mm-hmm. of these these pools are basically ice water fed so they just the ice melts and then you got this pond and they're frozen for the rest of the year so a lot of it's pretty clean. the The rivers vary uh, as far as sediment, depending on on the time of year, especially the ones that are frozen in the winter time. Because when they break up, there in the spring, there's a ton of sediment in them. But then they clear up as you know, the ice and everything mm-hmm. kind of gets out of out of the system in the spring. Yeah, so, when the ice is compacting the sides of the banks and everything, that's got to be exactly pretty awful. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. You know, every time I keep thinking of the project or the trip, I 
you know, I, I'm thinking of my history, and I'm like, just a little isolated little area. But no, you know, I ask you <laughs> the quality of the water. You're like, well, I'm 7,000 miles. So I'm going to see every damn thing there is to see. So, yeah. yeah. It's just really hard to even picture such a such a thing. Wow. Are yeah, there some I people a, who I have baby steps in my head, you know? That's cool. That's cool. Have, have you? Do you have familiarity with at least the general area? Are you from there or anything? I grew up in Alaska when I was a kid, but I wouldn't say that that makes me qualified to, to right. do any of this stuff. I grew up in yeah. Cleveland, but I'm not a heart surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So the the small advantage and exposure to it i have is that i did basically travel around alaska as far as you can go except for the the oil highway basically that goes all the way up to prudhoe bay but i i basically traveled through all of alaska where the roads go so i i have a feeling for kind of what the land is like and the the marshiness of of places and the what the underbrush looks like in in a range of places and that sort of thing so i have some inkling of mm-hmm. what it's what's going to be like and that kind of extrapolates to a certain extent you know along the along the latitudes that's not precise but yeah, it's, yeah. it's helpful do you, so, do you do you have some background in um hunting and fishing yeah yeah and that's part of the strategy too and one of the main concerns is I don't want to make it sound like this is going to be a subsistence hunting and fishing thing or Mm -hmm. I'm going to go live off the land, but it's a real thing where you have to consider, okay, I'm taking X amount of food, Mm -hmm. and what happens when a wolverine or a bear sneaks in at night and snatches some of it up? I mean, I'm going to be too far north for some of it to have trees. It's north of the tree line, so I can't hang stuff that's going to be completely out of the way of predators and oh, wow. you know, scavengers and that sort of thing. So that's that's a real concern is, okay, what happens just if your food gets stolen, you know? <laughs> you're, wow, you're I never even thought about that. You can't even hang it. Wow. Right. So, yeah. so Take a cast iron bear box with you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Just, Pack a pack an extra eighty pound uh, <laughs> container <laughs> just to hold stuff. So yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, there's there's a Japanese a traditional Japanese version of fly fishing called tenkara. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's basically fly fishing without a reel, and mm. it it dates back a long time. So I'll be taking a tenkara rod, which are super light, and supplementing that. They don't really handle big water real well or big fish. Yeah, mm-hmm. They're they're lightweight stream and you know small lake style style fishing. And then I'm going to supplement that with uh, hand line as well. So that's the hunting stuff. There's a bunch of different strategies, and that's blah 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 because of the legal regulations in oh, Canada. Oh, okay, yeah. It, you still, yeah, you're a man under the law. Still, you're not truly wild. <laughs> Yeah, so hunting isn't isn't a primary strategy um, for this stuff, but I, I will have some backup hunting stuff too, just for emergency stuff. So, you know, if if, yeah, if I get yeah. my food supply stolen, I gotta have a backup. Yeah, so. wow. 
wild stuff. My head's spinning a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> have you um? Do do you have some people that inspired you or that you're modeling um things that they've done or has anyone else done this course? Um. I'm pulling from a lot of places uh, and a lot of different expeditions. There, there isn't really anything that goes that far north that integrates the pack rafting and especially the bike stuff together. Um, so my main resources that I'm pulling from on the the kind of way north stuff are Wilhelmer Stephenson, which kind of has a huge history in the evolutionary diet stuff with the Inuit diet mm-hmm. and that because he was up there doing what he called ethnographic research, you know, anthropology in the early 1900s. He was up there basically traveling around on foot and dog sled throughout this whole area and after I went through that process of eyeballing the rivers and piecing together what I thought based on the landscape and and all of those things, what would be the best route? I, I had it all penciled out, and then I found I stumbled across a map that someone had put together of all of his travels, and something like 2,000 miles of it is exactly the same route. Oh, wow, cool. And he wrote something like five books, at least that I've read pieces and parts of uh, detailing specific stuff about all of this area. So it's been a huge help. Nice, um, nice. What was his yeah. name again? Wilhelmer Stephenson. Stephenson. Uh, All right. Stephenson, S T E F A N S S O N. His his most popular or famous book is called My Life with the Eskimo, you know, hmm. the, the technology from that day. But and actually the my expedition coincides with the centennial of him wrapping up his biggest expedition in 1912 so oh, wow that's that, really cool cool yeah totally a, just a coincidence yeah huh. and then the other uh arctic well polar explorer too that i'm pulling a lot of stuff from is Roald Amundsen uh which he of course was the first led the first expedition to the south pole but before that, he was the first. He led the first expedition to successfully sail the Northwest Passage, so all the way from Greenland across to Alaska through that that whole area north of Canada. And his writings in that area have been helpful too. And he actually met Stephenson, and <laughs> their paths crossed. So mm-hmm. they both wrote about some of these same areas. So a lot of the Canadian parts, the the way north stuff, I'm I'm pulling from those two uh, polar explorers when you get into the alaska stuff um there are some some really good recent examples that i can use for resources there have been several pack rafting and uh bike expeditions most of them fat bikes along what's usually called the lost coast of Alaska. So it's kind of that there's a str- couple hundred miles that's mostly beach on the, on the southeastern part of Alaska, kind of on the way to British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's been several expeditions that have kind of documented that trip. And they're usually about 10 days long for that section, but th- that's been a great resource as far as, 
technical stuff, and, and I will be in that exact same strip, too. Hmm. Yeah. You're talking so that, a 10-day trip there, but you're talking like six months, right, for you? Yeah, yeah. What? So, wow. What about physical conditioning? How, do, how have you prepared and... Basically, I'm doing kind of the uh, high-intensity interval training and strength work at this point. I don't think it's a good idea to wear myself out as far as endurance stuff ahead of time. Uh, just going going into it in a you know endurance training mode, I I don't think that's the best strategy for mm-hmm. this purpose, and that's for a specific reason, which is the first roughly thousand miles north through British Columbia is mostly going to be road biking. Okay, so I'm in I'm not dropping myself directly into the most intense part first. So that will be kind of a an in-between uh, interim training for those different metabolic pathways. Mm-hmm. So th- that kind of, I think, allows me to just work on the strength stuff mostly in, ahead of time and then not not kind of beat myself up too much. So Yeah. Nice break in. Just, yeah, and of course, the yeah. so I'm basically working on that as i mentioned and then the skill stuff too so the actual cycling stuff and the rafting stuff trying to stay dialed in Mm -hmm. on on those specific skills rather than just during stuff so what about people so you are going to be encountering towns camps things like that um what what kind of people are these are are they there for you know are these um oil you know are these men from the u.s are these isolated groups or what kind of towns and things are up here uh, the, at the far north, you get a lot of, of Inuit villages and farther down, uh, the native, native American villages of different tribes, uh, that I don't, I don't think they self-identify as Inuit. There's, mm-hmm. so there's kind of a, a gradation. And then as far as the different, different tribes, it changes along the way, the farther south you get, of course, it's, it's more regular civilization stuff. So the farther into British Columbia I get and closer to Yukon, after mm-hmm. I get out of uh, r- around Whitehorse, or no, I always get them confused, Yellowknife, Yellowknife, Whitehorse, mm-hmm. um, once I get past there, it's it's mostly small villages, um, and there's not a lot of them until I get way, until I basically get back to, to Anchorage. To civilization. <laughs> huge places, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Wow. So, so there's just a lot of small villages. I don't know. There's a there's a show on Discovery Channel called Flying Wild Alaska, and which is basically about it's a, a airline that's mostly comprised of bush pilots, or that's mm. how they got their start. So mm-hmm. they just fly to all these little villages, and that's Alaska specific. But if you're familiar with that show, or if you happen to be watching that show, a lot of those little towns is the kind of things that uh, kind of places I'll be seeing that their main contact with the outside world is is bush planes um, some of them have more sizable airports but that's huh. kind of what it is so a lot of them are, are sub- semi-subsistence villages once you get real far north and then they they get other kinds of supplies from uh, aircraft in too so yeah have you put any had any thought of documenting 
how you find these villages and the health of the people and what they're eating and kind of cap, you know, a la Weston A. Price, you know, go look inside some mouths and check out some teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be really cool. I wish I was more of a of an anthropologist specifically, you know, trained in, in that way. And mm-hmm. I also wish I had more time. Yeah. Um, that's my main limiting factor on this stuff is I'm going to be basically hit and run through all of this stuff, you know, resupply and then hit the road just because it's such a tight weather window yeah. i would love to to do that kind of stuff i i should probably say that the the villages and things that i'm talking about are, are established places I mean, they're um not to use this term pejoratively but technically sedentary uh kind of in the, in the middle of um sedentary hunter gatherers and modern kind of more modern civilization so um they're yeah. they're fixed places with many of them yeah post offices and airports and, and yeah, everything they probably have so, as much uh well not as much but they are probably laden with corporate food and twinkies and hostess and things as we are it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me yeah 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 package vary, prepared course, and- but Cases right. of natural light, beer cans, and hopefully you find all good stuff. But <laughs> we'll see. Well, I, I, there are there are other people living in those areas that are more mobile. I just don't know what I'm going to run into. Yeah, right, in that right. Regard. So we'll we'll see. I'll I'll keep you posted on that. All right. So what about safety out there? What are your what are the fears or what are the legitimate um, concerns. Well, the food disappearing thing is probably <laughs> the number one thing I worry yeah. about. Uh, besides practical route related things, some of the route is, is going to be really difficult. Um, the, one of the main things that I'm concerned with is the, there's a portion that's basically follows the Iditarod trail in Alaska which really isn't set up for summer, fall, any time that it's not frozen travel. Hmm. And it's it's a snowmobile, snow machine, okay. uh, dog yeah. sled trail, right? So it it gets ugly in the summertime. Oh, so that's going to be yeah. it's going to be mucky, swampy, bushwhacking for some of it. And I'm trying to keep the elevation as high as possible. To the extent that it's possible to, to stay out of that stuff, but there's just some areas that are going to be a slog, and there's no way around it. You mm-hmm. know, um, it's a lot so of pushing, that. a lot of pushing, yeah, not just riding. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. The, the bike thing, is, it's it's going to get pushed a lot. Um, so there's that. That's a real a real concern, and you know, partially because if the more I get hung up on places, the uglier the weather gets at the end of the route. And the end of the route is a concern. That, that's basically the inside passage from Alaska to British Columbia, and that's that's on the water. And as you get to winter, the the seas get ugly. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a temperate rainforest, so the weather you know, precipitation gets ugly. You get start getting snow and all this combination of stuff that you really don't want to be out there for a long time. Yeah, so yeah. The, the sooner I can get there, the better. So all yeah. these little weather things that add up along the way kind of add to the concern. The other thing that is my main concern is, is 
one of the first big obstacles is Great Bear Lake, which I, I'm going to try to get across when it's frozen. I don't know if that's even going to be possible. So I have other routes, uh, alternatives, if I can't make it across there. But, you know, certain times of the year, that's more or less a flat, uh, flat shot across. And if I hit it right... I can make good time across mm. ice that has it's not super super smooth sh- slippery sheet of ice but has some has some bite to it if I hit it yeah, at the yeah. right time I can make great it's like <laughs> great great That's, way to get across yeah. if I hit it at the wrong time it's sloppy or there's too many uh bumpy ice mm-hmm. crazy stuff going on and i'll just have to go around it and take it, one of the other just routes crazy so. to do without scouts i mean no one yeah. would this even be possible without technology before to do alone to do solo i probably wouldn't try it uh <laughs> basically just be like personally, the satellite stuff is so valuable. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if, even if you're just using Google Maps, mm-hmm. just the satellite stuff and the topographic mapping is a huge resource. And I don't think that I would be able to even come close to planning it. You know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. yeah. Those what guys. What size were the parties that they would take? Do you do you know? They would be uh, anywhere from two to ten, fifteen. Uh, oh, okay, relatively small, smaller than I would have thought. Yeah, they, those guys, and, and actually, that's part of the reason that I listened to them more specifically is that they were critical of these huge oh. expeditions that would go out, and, and they were like, you know, you can't. It, it's it's not going to work out well. You have too mm-hmm. many logistical things that add up and multiply. And, and they kind of were early proponents of kind of the light and fast approach. Mm-hmm. Although they're, the way that they did light and fast is still way heavier <laughs> and way yeah, slower yeah. Than, than now. But, you know, they're, they're trying to go with that, that aesthetic that is is becoming more popular within the backpacking community in general um you know traveling light so mm-hmm. they they talk about you know don't bring a ton of stuff bring an empty sled or as some backup rations and then do subsistence stuff along mm-hmm. the way of course they didn't have to deal with any any sort of regulations and whatever at that time um but yeah that that was kind of the way that they succeeded and and Amundsen and Stephenson both were uh, big on adapting to what the local peoples did and and using their wisdom as much as possible and not having this kind of western conqueror approach where we're going (laughs) to take our massive stuff and go it's us against the the environment and we're going to we're going to own it and overpower it like they they were big on kind of using the the native approach and and using that to their advantage and and they did it well and Amundsen specifically attributes his success at getting to the south pole on on exactly that so hmm. i think That's there's a lot of, of a, a lot of wisdom there kind of like a different take on your nature relatedness comment that you made yeah. earlier um, yeah, being in tune with it, you know, 
instead of, like you said, trying to conquer it. Interesting. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Exactly. And I, I think I mentioned somewhere is like people have a, a tendency, you know, modern uh, people, we all kind of are disconnected with, with nature and our roots to some extent. And we, t- we have the tendency to look at it in, in somewhat of a fear approach a lot of times and I, I don't think that's the the healthiest place i don't think looking at the world as a survival show or the or as nature as a survival show is is the best place to start you know <laughs> uh, it's yeah. the dangers are real and everything and that shouldn't be discounted but i i guess i don't think fear is the best place to start <laughs> anything you know sure, sure. Um, so having a healthy healthy respect is is mm-hmm. a good yeah, starting. you know, when you were talking about the nature-relatedness idea, you know, in most anything in the world, when you when you go out and do something, whether it's, say you have to go to sports practice, you don't want to go, you do it, you feel better for it. But mm-hmm. when it comes to nature, it, it goes a whole level higher, doesn't it? it I mean, it really mm-hmm. does. When you yeah, get into so. nature and experience it, that relatedness, that, 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 that boost is crazy. I used to travel a lot. But by car, I car camped all across the country. Mm-hmm. I've been to sure. four, all, all contiguous states. Um, so I wasn't exactly completely in touch with nature, but I've been to most every national park, many national forests and done things like that. And when I came back, to be honest, I felt superior to those yeah. around me. And you just feel yeah. it's a really bad way to put it, but that's just what came to my head at the moment. You, you, it's like a in a, a an enlightened high. You you feel out of place in your own hometown when you come back. I mean, it, it really it it lifts you up. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's cool, you know, to have that experience. And a lot of us have had that experience, just kind of on an intuitive level. You go out and experience stuff, and you look back it's like okay there's something going on here i can't really put a finger on it so to me is it's been very cool to see science looking at this stuff and and putting some some real you know measurements on it mm-hmm. and so we can understand this stuff so i think you know be this is utopian but i i think that adding the scientific element and saying okay this is real it's just not just some hippie <laughs> new age contrivance that's you really know? cool yeah there, yeah there's there's actual science behind this stuff and there are actual benefits that are measurable and i just i love that angle mm-hmm. and i think it opens the potential up to to a whole different set of people that would benefit so. yeah Nothing compares to actually getting to Zion Park, though, or, you know, you name the park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it is cool that it may in some way or at, at some point be quantifiable, but um, there there is nothing that compares to that experience. And um, I, I think you're, you're going to come back, you know, a much bigger person than you are now. Yeah. I <laughs> I can't imagine that not being true. Yeah, because I know you you said you you didn't even really want to say what you're going to be doing out there or what you're going to experience because you you re- you do not know. Right. Yeah. I I <laughs> I think I said it would be naive um, or hubris, you know, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to think that I can actually quantify it all or predict 
even minimal parts of it. I'm I'm open to the whole thing and the the quantification of it, the stuff that I was just talking about, mm-hmm. the science stuff. I I think that's valuable to the extent that it just shows people that there are real benefits, mm-hmm. so that they should go do it. I definitely not a replacement for that, uh, but maybe you know, people who are skeptical and are just like, yeah, it's fine, city, you know, all that, all that stuff is just made up, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. People are just trying to do their whatever hippie thing. Just having having the extra motivations, like okay, science shows that there are benefits, so go do it, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I, I fully expect to uh, be changed in, in ways that I can't predict ahead of time. Super cool. Yeah, as far as experiencing it and then having the science, it's same thing like, say, um, as you're in a, 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 for an average paleo experimenter, paleo diet person, mm-hmm. and just talking to your family and friends, you know, you kind of need Rob Wolf's The Paleo Solution when someone starts coming at you with the science questions. Right. He right. say, here, read this book. It's in there. You know, someone will say to me, show me the data. I'm like, well, you can look at yeah. me or read this book or the 10,000 blogs that are out there. I'm not <laughs> – don't, don't lean on me for the science, man. Get in and <laughs> right. enjoy it. Give it a try. If it doesn't work for you, fine. I don't want to argue about it. Go eat fruit. Yeah. I don't care, you know. Yeah, and that's you know one of the great things about – Rob and kind of what part of what I I think would be cool if I had some minimal impact in this is just getting people to try the stuff. <laughs> Go, you know, try the way of eating. Mm-hmm. Try, try the experience in this adventure stuff in in context that you haven't done before. Try the stuff. So whatever angle you use to get people to try stuff, I, I think is, is cool as, yeah. as long as it has some effect. That's so yeah, cool. all of that stuff is, they're all good angles. This so. is great. You know, I, I feel inspired to go reconnect with nature because I've been pretty far removed from it for the past, oh, decade or so, especially after having kids. I know I should yeah. be more, you know, I should have them out there and showing them what I know and what I don't know and that's invigorating for me. It's it's exciting. So yeah, it, when you were talking about examples and who I'm pulling from, there's a couple other good ones. And, and your mm-hmm. note on kids just reminded me of this. There's a a book called A Long Journey Home or A Long Trek Home. I can't recall what the exact title is. It's mm-hmm. by um, Aaron. I think her last name is McKittrick. It's it's a couple. They're na- they go by Aaron and Hig. I, I can't remember. Okay their exact last name, but they did when they were, uh, before they had kids, they did, they took pack rafts the other direction up the inside passage from Seattle all the way up to the Aleutians. Uh, and they, they did skiing and stuff to get through part of it. It's kind of a different vibe, but they did the actual pack rafting part of the inside passage, but they now have, I think two kids and they're still out doing crazy expeditions, hmm. uh, on glaciers and whatever. So I, I don't have kids myself, but I, I think that they might be a great resource for that stuff too. Um, even though my my exposure to them has been kind of that that's that one particular expedition, mm-hmm. they do have some more recent stuff that is probably cool for people with kids to go look at just to see how to do this stuff with small children. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and then an, another guy who uh, did a sort of similar route in 2010. His name's Andrew Skirka. 
And he did like a 4,800-mile Alaska-Yukon loop. He used pack rafting in part of it too, but he did uh, skiing and a lot of trekking. But he's been really helpful too, and, and his um, his website on resources to put all this stuff together. So that, those two are, are other ones that I, I should not leave out in the kind of – uh, logistical yeah. planning and, and great ideas yeah, that's too. Cool. I'm just making a note here. Um, I want to point out um, before we go that link is um, 770.org forward slash FBRTA. I get that right? Sounds right. Yeah, I just tried it and it worked. So. Cool. Because cool. trust me, no one's going to read the show notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, man, thanks. This has been uh, super cool. You gave me uh, tons of reading material. Plus, I get to follow your adventure. You you hit your goal, your your initial goal on the Kickstarter. So the trip is on, right? right? It's on. Okay. Uh, cool. The documentary is on. Uh, put pushing it up a little bit farther. It expires mm-hmm. on February sixteenth. Pushing it up a little bit farther, the new number is in there, will allow me to get the sat phone dialed in. Okay. Um, and the, if people want to follow along, the the best places are going to be um, the 770 Twitter account is where I'm going to sync up all of this stuff. I'll probably also feed that out to Facebook too, but that's, that's my main okay. – uh, Twitter just at the seven seven zero. So at seven seven zero. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your time, Andrew. And um, I hope at least a few of my f- listeners will um, log on, send you a couple bucks, help you out with some technology. And uh, man, best of luck to you. And thanks for doing this because us out here, we need it. <laughs> we need someone doing this. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Like, really, really cool conversation. Was, yeah, All right. thanks. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Good night. Yeah. Bye, Brian. <laughs>